Hi, my name is Janelle Engelstad, and welcome to the MAP Radio Hour, a Make Art with Purpose podcast. The MAP Radio Hour includes conversations with creatives, scientists, and other people addressing the intersection of cultural, political, and environmental concerns. You can find out more about MAP and our projects at makeartwithpurpose.net. Conversation with Mouth, Materials and Crafts, an art collective based in Puerto Rico. Mouth salvages tropical discarded trees and other goods of biological origin to make material for design and art projects with a focus on creating a local woodworking culture that is both sustainable and economically feasible. Translation of the Spanish segments of this conversation is by Jean-Luc Vila. So we're in Dallas, Texas with Mouth from Puerto Rico and I thought we'd begin by having the members of the collective introduce themselves. Uh, my name is Mario Gracia, Otero. Diego de la Cruz Gaitán. And I am Gabriel Maldonado Andreu. I'm a collaborator. Okay. I'm Ana Figueroa. Your work is so rooted also in this sort of history of working with tropical woods, which seems as, you know, in our modern world, we've gotten away so much from working with traditional materials right. and the craft. So that's a nice connection there, too, which it feels like to me from seeing your work that that's an, another important aspect of how you work in the world as creative people is paying attention to, to those historical ties. That's how it is, basically, in Puerto Rico and in a lot of different places in the world. But I think in Puerto Rico that it's the most great. It has a lot to do with our relationship with the United States. The speed and the violence and the way that that changed the way we did things and the disconnection between our materials caused by that distress. In many parts of the world, you get that erosion of, of uh, materials be previously being used uh, before industrialization. So that is happening throughout the world, you know, the loss of this traditional knowledge to work, work with local materials. So in Puerto Rico, it's even more violent, more marked that, that, that loss because of its situation, its uh, colonial situation. Right. So when you're mining uh, that historical knowledge in Puerto Rico, where do you trace that to? Indigenous culture or Spanish culture? I mean, where do you, where do you really trace that knowledge to? It comes from a lot of different eras. I think that where that disconnection most gravely shows up 
is obviously during the Spanish colonization or the extreme violence against the indigenous peoples, their way of life, and their materials. With the Spanish conquest, there was a, a interruption of, of the ways of, of the natives and uh, the, the way they conducted their lives. But one thing that's returned is a pattern that has repeated itself because of our relationship with the United States and the project of modernization, that the culture and the knowledge around the repertoire of historic material that are locally available, with the changes due to industrialization, created another violent distancing akin to the Spanish conquest. So this violence was sort of relived when the United States invaded Puerto Rico and it, it, uh, it, it, it resonates in that sense and the loss has been equally, equally violent, you know, equally destructive, destructive um, in, in the relationship we have with local materials and, um, and, and, also, and ourselves. And also modernization, so, so like... Yeah, the, mod the modernizing project has also contributed to, to this, you know, yeah. decay of, of that knowledge. But that being said, you know, there are certainly traces, very clear traces of this knowledge in the folklore. So you asked us, how does that information kind of filters in the way we work? And it's through many, many sources that we get this knowledge passed down to us in, in, in a way. So from somebody remembering how their grandparents used this, this wood moral, for example, as wood for machete handles or for, for hoes or for axes. And you know, this wood is good for, you know, mahogany is great for, for furniture making and, and this other wood, what I wow is used for, for post and beam construction. Anyway, you get you get this these references constantly if you if you're prying into those to those memories, and it is through constant communication with people that have already studied this field or not, you know, mm. uh, that you get that that sort of information flowing. I feel like as artists and craftspeople and you know creative people in general, when you embark on this journey of making something and when you're connecting it to a tradition, a historical tradition, a tradition of a people that has been colonized, that something comes in that's intuitive too. That you, you're, you have all these sources, but at some point there's this, I think, an intuitive space that leads you to knowledge within that I think, you know, we maybe carry with us. If, we're, if we get in touch with it. I don't know if, if that is something that you feel is relevant for you. The role of, of intuition as, as creative people. Well, I think that, yeah, there's definitely, there's an energy and motivation and a kind of leaving it to intuition that guides things. I don't know if that intuition reaches a place immediately where there's an understanding of how to concretely do things. But I think there's a feeling that then later allows those new interactions, those new accumulation of information, 
and new connections to go through the work we do and our materials that eventually something will reveal itself. It's, it's a feeling. So certainly intuition is a, is a, it's part of that, that, um, the, uh, uh, as a guiding, as a guiding force. And to what extent intuition lets you access that information? Intuition doesn't necessarily synthesize that knowledge. It's, it just uh, guides you. But what, uh, what is sospecha? How do you say sospecha? Uh, because that was the bold right, right, part of was, it. Yeah. So intuition may lead you to suspect. Suspecting or, right, or suspicion. Yeah. suspicion or or right where you get hints a hint of something right. yeah I also would kind of want to go back to the previous question sort of like the develop that a bit more because um you know as Mario said the knowledge we that's being given to us or that we're uh, <laughs> compiling or that's like uh, feeding our project uh, you know comes from from a lot of like one-on-one -on -one contact and by that you know it's like a memory of people folklore uh, uh. but i think like de depending on what object or what project we're talking about <laughs> i think there's definitely things you know there's a right, right over here we have an example of there's a dye this died with uh with the fruit that we found we uh, collected after the pass of hurricane maria where this a uh, really tall tree that it's usually hard to get the uh, unripened fruit. It fell down, we had like an abundance of it. And one of us in the team knew that you could make a dye from it and we just went ahead and, and made it. But this dye uh, was a dye that was uh, the native people, Taino, they, they, they would uh, dye their eyes and their mouth uh, before going into war. And it was a uh, part of their their palette, you know, it was their black in their palette, or the darkest color in their palette. Through our processes, there's no, uh, like, being a purist of, you know, or we're into, a, like, a, a sort of the archaeologists, like, just focusing on uh, on the natives of Puerto Rico. Is, uh, I feel like, especially in, in our setting, like, in the urban setting, like, it's really hard to sort of like uh, separate these different layers and the diversity of knowledge that uh, it's coming into our project and to our research and to our practice. What is the name of that fruit? Hagua. Okay, so if we go back to collecting that fruit that you typically don't work with because it's too hard to reach and it came down from the storm and now one of you have the knowledge that it could be used as a dye and so you now are using it as a dye and in the indigenous culture it was used to darken the eyes and the mouth mm -hmm. before going into battle. That understanding and that relationship to materials, to me, is another level of meaning in the world because the material has power. 
The material has the power to protect the wearer, right? It has the power to project something that before you go into battle, if you didn't have that, you wouldn't be gaining that power. And that, to me, really connects to something I talked about with you earlier is in that I really feel that your work connecting this triangle of labor, land, and materials is almost well, spiritual. And I don't mean religious, but there is a... A uh, breath. Yeah. A breath that is coming into every moment that you have this relationship with the material. Yeah, and so. I think that's really a beautiful expression of craft that is absent from so much of our world today. And that, again, is kind of what I was trying to reference when I was talking about the mining of history, that there's <clears> this <throat> very deep connectedness to Pachamama. But yeah, I think, for example, the symbolic nature of the paint over the face for the Taino in Puerto Rico is the link that they had with the material. And we're in the process of creating a link with our interior materials. But it's not necessarily an immediate transfer of that symbolism. We recognize it, and in turn, it enriches us. So it has to be understood that this dye that was used in that, uh, by, by, the, by the Dainos, and how they used it, it was their relationship to that material, right? right? right. And now, we're, as we're rediscovering it, we're going to start to use that symbolic this is certainly not an object-based project. Right. We're not aiming at producing a particular aesthetic or a particular work of art or corpus, right? So what interests us more than, than the art object itself is just the expansion of our curiosity, right? And the, and the fulfillment of that curiosity through our daily practice. So, how does Maria interrupt that, or inform that, or does it, does it change anything, or does it support this idea for autonomy? I mean, you live in a hurricane region. Another thing is, we're in this time of climate change, where we're predicted to have more and more of these storms. You know, what's really important question for me, as a creative person, is, is how do we look at this and adapt to it, or how do we respond to it? And how do we take care or think about it in ways that are generative? And I wonder if that is at all part of your thinking or your understanding, especially with this recent storm, or if it was even before the storm, something that informed you. I think in the situation that is currently unfolding, what we are responding to is an intention towards participation in creating a distinct context or reality. There are things that have been dissolving for a long time. There's something broken in our context. And Maria is a natural event, and we don't know if that will keep happening and become our new context.
Es que si no. Si no, es que no entiendo, pero es que si no, no sé. Sí, pero es que no hay break. Es que no hay break de traducción. What happens in in our island? There's this will for making something that changes the situation. We're aiming towards something better. Right. We were prepared almost as a project for this moment. And one thing I want to build on, I, like I want to keep on building on this. Say one more thing, and especially right now in Maria with Maria, where, where like there's just so much more trees that we're salvaging, because <laughs> if not they go to waste. Sort of like the strain we're putting our bodies to, like our immediate reaction to a chainsaw is admiration, but I'm, you know, starting to be repelled by the speed with what a chainsaw cuts down a tree, like, like knowing what it means to physically move a tree trunk an inch. All of a sudden, by looking at that tree, like feeling in my gut, like <laughs> that post <laughs> strain, like that. So specifically, we can talk about here. We can talk about uh, our, our work with Angel Leonardo, you know, an artist based out of uh, Dominican Republic, uh, where we researching around uh, pre-colonial navigation, and uh, because the canoe is a, is a uh, es una figura muy importante en la cosmología. Yeah, specifically, I, I, I think the first thing that came that came to research was the canoe of actually building a canoe, the canoe. In itself, as a symbolic object, but also as a as a, a connecting, as a vinculante, uh, Some, something that links something that links and bridges the islands right, together. Right, right. It was it was viewed as a connection with the cosmos, like the like rowing was viewed as flying. Uh, the, the, yeah. The horizontal movement was uh, linked by uh, the distance that you the the you travel in horizontal direction. It was an equivalent with the vertical elevation. elevation. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how where these mythologies, or I, I almost hesitate to call it a mythology because I think it's much more than a mythology. But it's interesting where they show up in the Civil War in the United States in the South when a soldier was killed in battle, they would say he was going on his canoe now. You know, this is a pretty much a Christian tradition of southern United States. And they actually use that idea of someone going into the heavens, if you will, on a canoe. Some things were learned through a prompt investigation with our territory and our connection with the other islands. And with that displacement of navigation of those areas that I don't think we're in a place of recognizing it. But Apparently, that's something that we find in a lot of places in the world. The canoe and navigation as a spiritual exercise. Through the research, uh, specific research that we've been doing with, uh, in collaboration with Angel Leonardo, we're already we're getting fine. the hint, <laughs> or you know, we're already grasping upon the reality that the canoe as a, a sacred, spiritual, uh, but also functional object, it's not limited to the the Caribbean. Right. Something yeah. that happened it's in, in Polynesia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In Polynesia, Polynesia, for, for example. That's something common. It's a, it's a, it's a mirada común, una mirada vinculante, una experiencia común. There's something. Like, punctualmente mirándose, mirando su, qué sé yo, su historia, mirando su objeto, mirando su Vehículo, 
eh, de repente se crean unas conexiones que, que se extienden más allá de, lo, de las condiciones específicas específicas geográficas. Through, through seeing, looking at, at the objects or these objects, look, looking at the, the, the ways where you're engaging, you're seeing what is happening in your context, but you're actually also communicating with you know, things that are beyond that context mm -hmm. through those objects. I think in simplest terms of what we were talking about earlier, the kind of the, the violence and the distancing that has happened through colonialism, it's important to mention that it's it's not it's been colonized not once but twice, right? And so in essence colonization also has to do with the fact that there's an external taking and also imposing, right? And that has created the local to to distance, right? And I think that in that distance there's there's forgetting. Right, and I think that these practices that we're talking about, mouth and also the work of Beta, is an active and aggressive method of observation and study of the things that you have at arm's length. And so we can go into talking about all of these things and, and history and all that, but it's, it's like what you're saying, or, or, or kind of like connecting to what you're saying earlier, how does the wood inform your art or what it is? And, and I think that you know, in a strange way, even the wood is, is the art. Right. Right. You know, that the material, that that proximity is it. And at the same time, with that same thing, you know, simple processes of doing research on pre-colonial navigation and doing research on the materials accessible to you becomes something, an act of uh, resistance, an act, a subversive act. But it, it, it's also, it's, it's, it's a way of living, right? It's a way of living and, and in, in, in essence, again, it's self-sufficiency, right? So the islanders were living and navigating with canoes because of wanting to sustain themselves, yeah. right? Something really right. quick wanting that we have. Or, or needing to. Or needing to, needing yeah. to live yeah. and coexist with the environment right. and having right. to sustain right. themselves. Right. In that moment, it wasn't an act of resistance. Right. But it was a reality. And so I think it is kind of right now an act of resistance, but it's also, it's a reality that we want to be living that is in touch with our land and our island and the neighboring areas with the things that the land gives us. Right. What it provides. I, what I, what I want to say, at least on my behalf, is there's a, a danger right now. I, I studied literature, so I acknowledge the danger of language. Language is mined with intention, and in this case, it's mined with very powerful and restrictive and controlling intentions. So the words we use to define ourselves must be, in our case, stemming from or rooted in the specific practice we're doing. There is no way that you can understand something without actually experiencing it. And if you start from that, then maybe it becomes a little bit clearer how you define these concepts that are floating around, right? It is through practice, right? Daily practice, commitment, that you actually 
start understanding the world, not the other way around. Of course. I mean, so, that's the spiritual thing of it. That's what I mean by that. I mean, right. it's a practice. It's like meditating. And, and the thing it's, is, it's, it stems you know, from yourself. It does, right. it's, it's not right. an external imposition. And right. it may or may not be beautiful. It may or may not be right. anything, right? But you have to put yourself on the line. Right? Yeah, for yourself. For yourself, yes. with your own, with your, your own effort. For us, that's beautiful. Having the, a great opportunity to actually be living like this, right? For us, is you know, so stimulating, and it's it's our aesthetic, like how we feel ourselves connected, how we live with ourselves, how we cook, how we dance together, how we laugh together, how we drink together, you know, how we everything, right? This is the marrow, you know, not you know art. Yeah. It's it's you know you it can be read in many other ways, but right. fundamentally that's what that's the underlying right. fact. Right. right. The Map Radio Hour is funded in part by the Lift Your Voice Advocacy Fund. Production by Matthew Horton, theme song and logo by Otto Huditz. I'm Janiel Engelstad. Thanks for listening. And visit the Make Art with Purpose website to connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. <laughs>